My name's Tracy Smith. I was born and raised in Kalamazoo, Michigan. In 1998, I attended the South by Southwest Film Festival in Austin, Texas. And at a promotional side event at a local coffee house, I saw a showcase featuring some of the most talented performance poets in the country. Afterwards, I returned home and founded the Kalamazoo Poetry Slam. Now, almost 25 years later, for the sake of history, for the sake of nostalgia, and for some of the incredibly talented people we've lost along the way, I give you, dear listener, the Keizu Poetry Slamcast. This is Slam Poem. Later, like, the poems are like, you dirty fucking whore. But this is one of the good ones from the beginning. My ears reach in the suburban noise of night. There's a question asked in one naked moment that never crossed into I am the Smith. I am the poet. I am the industrial revolution. No longer bright as fireflies. No this week's podcast was recorded in November of 2000. Don Saylor is the host, and Scott Klein from Detroit is the feature. Scott's been on several Detroit Slam teams. He coached the team in 2002 that won the National Poetry Slam. Um, he's one of the founding members of the Midwest Poetry Slam League. That we had going for a few years. And he's the only guy I know who got booed off the stage at the Green Mill on purpose. It was a real hold my beer moment that I will never forget. During the open mic, you'll hear Don announce some of the features for upcoming shows. uh, Some of which got recorded and some of them didn't. Or maybe they got lost or mislabeled or taped over. You know how this goes by now. Okay, let's do this. Tub and face the muse. You see, I've been wondering for weeks how I got here. I feel like an eight-track tape stuck in a loop, and I feel the earth move under my feet. I'm living in perpetual motion, but it's another deja vu day with customers and saints. There are worries like flat tires and cigarette fires, CNN, and there's still no president. There's sexual harassment at the gas station and me wish- wasting my best memories on acid trips and these days slipping out of my grasp. But I remember a five-year-old child with a rainbow smile, and I still want to be clapping my hands for Tinkerbell. I want to see my parents with wide-eyed innocent be- innocence believing the world is good and kind. But they say that three elderly people were beaten to death 20 minutes from my house. They say that there's another war that doesn't concern me. They say there's a- another child dying, another my- mother crying, another siren wailing in the distance to remind me of my mortality. I feel the will to fight for my dreams diminishing just a little bit more every day. But what if it ended tomorrow? The tapestry fell and fractions of my life flipped before my eyes like a whipping wind dripping the pages. What would I remember? When I kissed the boy next door or the peach satin dress my mother made at my, at my first school dance? When I played Mary in the Christmas musical? Will I remember standing outside Graceland, Graceland disbelieving that we'd made it? Or the beautiful red-headed boy who made me a spatula out of a Budweiser can? I think that I will remember the time we were all wrapped in green velvet starshine, singing Bob Dylan, floating in the ripple of our own fantasy, or the look the moment we realized we still loved each other. I want to believe that this time it's real, 
because a minute moves quicker and snowballs faster, taking hours into days away from fingertips. And amidst all this, there are revolutions and insurrections with me seeking redemption, because one day you wake up and realize that all we have is each other. <laughs> are you awake now? Cool. All right, we got a few announcements, and then we're going to go right into the open mic. First and foremost being next week, our feature is Marsha Perry for Sister Speaks, and she does, like, poetry, and she's going to have a slideshow. She's a poet and an artist, and she's going to have some of her sculptures up here for everybody to check out. And then December 19th, we have Brian Henry Holvey. Did I say it right? Holvey? Okay, nobody's correcting me. I win. And then December 26th, see, I win all the time. I say so. Then December 26th, there's actually me and Dan are going to be doing a feature because we're going to be going to San Francisco the next week or so. <laughs> so excited, so excited. All right. Always go first. I did not come all this way just to drop the ball. <laughs> the jet is almost across the black North Atlantic and all the homebound Italians are out of seats, socializing in hushed clusters like a soaring wake in this language I would have spoken professionally two generations ago that now sounds only like Spanish to my blunted Americanized ears. I don't belong to them, a distant spin-off a unilingual Yankee abstraction with a phrase book dangling by the vowel in my last name and <laughs> losing my breath in the thin pressurized air of the only easy opportunity I'll have all trip to connect with a pipe dream Tuscan blonde and her straight Euclidean legs as she tries to figure out a way for us to get past the food cart blocking the aisle. She crinkles her eyes and smiles and speaks this, this strange dialect that I'd heard before only in daydreams of deserted islands and, and foreign castaways. As she lobs me one of those floater freebie moments I should have blasted upper deck like a tobacco-juiced major league role model. And all I remember is dropping my chin in clumsy, slow-motion freefall. Hair to eyes to lips to breasts to belly to legs to legs to legs to earth. Then inarticulating something remarkably guarded and midwesternly plain and non-magnetic and whiff, watching those legs slide straightly away down the aisle toward the genuine hard crust homebred Sicilian in business class with his bottle of red and his romance language and his sweet DiMaggio swing. the music stand back because you'll feel so professional 
this is a little ditty that I just whipped out this afternoon, and nobody has heard it yet but my dogs. And I'm having a weird, verklempt, cathartic day, so I'm going to try to make th my way through it. It's called By the Numbers. There are two toothbrushes stuck jauntily in the holder on the bathroom sink, and the sight makes me stumble a bit through the rushed countdown of my out-the-door exodus to my nine-to-five. Yesterday morning, there was only one, bristling defiantly, alone, for three and a half months, since the night he eased in eight hours late to tell me he doesn't believe in infinite numbers, and cried that he already missed me, but it was all over anyhow, and I was so shocked that all I could say was, okay. And 20 minutes later, he was back out the door with half my heart floundering along behind him. I hurried to punch 11 long-distance numbers to turn to the girlfriend who'd been there since we were both six and who talked me down from a 14-year-old crush on a 12th grader named Thad. And she guided me on the single woman's tour of the seven tiny rooms I was rattling around in, helping me make them sterile enough for a heart trying to heal. The toothbrush was the first thing to go. She suggested I use it to scrub the toilet or brush the dog's teeth, but instead I stuffed it into the back of the second drawer, not willing to admit to her I was hoping its owner would need it once more. Besides, after a couple months of first and only dates and one-night stands and one three-week sojourn into possibility that would fizzle and a number of nights remembering how to be alone, the hurt wouldn't be a sharp one when I caught sight of it among the Q-tips and dental floss. And when that hurt wasn't sharp, maybe it wouldn't hurt either to spend an hour or two talking over a drink or three with him again, since he always was my number one friend, and he's still the first to hear my good news, or I've got two tickets to see this show, and then it's his 11 digits I'm dialing with shaking fingers after doing a 180 off a frozen highway, and could I please come over, even though it's after 12, because cold shock is ricocheting relentlessly around inside of me, and the fire's already burning when I get there. And now, it's the third morning that he's woken up in my bed, and for the first time, he doesn't put the toothbrush back in the drawer that he wordlessly dug it out of, and it's sharing space with mine in a silent declaration of together. But he's got a four-year-old son far away, and two weeks after he sells the house he's lived in for three years, which seems to be his outside limit in any one place, he'll be gone. So I know our nights are numbered, but I'm remembering the magic and counting on the comfort and tasting sweet alive again, and God damn it, I'm happy. And anyway, we've never exactly done things by the numbers, he and I, and my heart has finally learned how not to count. Okay, so uh, this poem, uh, he has this poem about his daughter, and it's called Brown Eyes. Am I correct? Yep, okay. And um, so this is sort of like an affirmation of that poem. My father warns, girl, you're starting to look like your mother. Yeah, that's right. I have my mother's hips that dip side to side, swish and sway. She's been getting some pretty good action over the last 25 years with those hips. Over time, they shifted like 
Lake Michigan rounding and rounding her gray green eyes, olive skin, kept white black Latino men, and yes, even women interested in her. Even after that first slice into her soft tummy, a full excavation, ovary, cervix, uterus, eggs. Three years later, she had a backache, so doctors shoveled out a blackened kidney. Her thin body filled with water, size A breast swelled into cantaloupe, scar tissue built a wall around her pancreas. And this time, doctors stapled her back together instead of stitched. Her scars are caterpillars that never crawl, cocoon, or grow wings. And by 46, she would have benign cancer removed from her intestine. Two years later, a stone removed from her gland in her neck, an incision through the mouth. She said, no scar, no damage. No damage. My mom is one tough ass bitch. And when I hear my dad telling me I'm starting to look like my mother, the skin of my mother and my body is proud. Yeah, that's right. I got 48 inch hips and I wear my body pressed up against the glass of your eyes. And when I walk by, I catch your triple take. Cause I know I've got my mother's walk and we are wild women of the Scar Clan. Okay, you guys liking it? Cool. All right, I want to remind you guys that we got CDs for sale from this last year. We got the team CD, and we also have a best of compilation CD of everybody who was here and performed last year. See Mr. Tracy Smith, he's the wild-eyed Irishman wandering around. <laughs> All right, I'm closing my eyes so as to be extremely fair. All right. The next two people we will have are going to be Mike D and Dan. All right, y'all ready? Let's get loud. Come on. Yeah. Come on, Mike. Yeah, woo. And now for something completely different. For those of you who care, this is a Sestina. It's a kind of poem, all right? If it is poetry to speak, a lie which tells the truth, then I tell you truly I feel like a liar. It tastes like deceit, this absence of weeping, silence that circles my throat like a wire. Fly away words like birds from a wire, gone south with all the stories my sorrow would speak. I tell you truly I too will be weeping, from my silence at times, a foe of the truth has woven once again a new deceit, and with neither a word nor a tear, I remain a liar. It takes a lot of work to be a good liar, and sense of balance better than no net walking high wire. We poets are circus acrobats of deceit. We make it look easy, constantly risking absurdity, and speak the magician's sign language version of truth. We would have you believe us incapable of weeping. Like the way a voice wavers when you speak while weeping, certain phrases I fear will prove me a liar. Like ink through thin paper, what bleeds through is truth, though painful to pronounce. Like the way a wire holding a broken jaw together makes it hard to speak. To write instead is an easier deceit. There is no truly easy deceit. They always result in someone weeping. Therefore, please permit me not to speak if an absence of tears is the silence of a liar. 
There is no music in a broken piano wire. Mid-sonata, a missed note, this is truth. That one brief moment of awkward silence is truth. That we can create something perfect is greatest deceit, disproved by the lack of tension in a single wire. Had we heard the whole piece, we would certainly be weeping. It would be the work of an immaculate liar who needed not a single word to speak. Truth makes gnashing of teeth and ceaseless weeping the end of many a deceit-loving liar. Crown me with barbed wire, if anything less I speak. Those of you who care, this is not a Sistina. There's money to be made out there in the world. There's fire in the sky. I'm going to try to retire in my prime just in time before the cancer sets in. There's commercials to see, pearls of value and wisdom. You never have to speak, never have to seek the truth. Shout it out like Americans through microphones of truth. It's easy. There's time to be sleazy. There's time to be bold. There's gated communities with reasonable tax codes and decent well water. There's fluoride and chlorine and red ripe tomatoes. There's antibiotics and antibiotics and antibiotics and antibiotics. And there's at least one more chance to slap a question mark at the end of a declarative. There's green, green grass and corn cob pipes. There's cores and dunk and pop rocks and mood rings and melodies. There's long, lean legs and fingertips that soothe the sullen surface of my soul. There's Sports cars and innuendos racing around with reckless abandon. There's hands and feet and pinky toes that know tenderness. There's blue skies to ascend towards and UV rays that surround us and penetrate us. There's forces at work and mysterious sightings. There's lightning and thunder and wonderful silence. And all through the maze of the haziest days, there is passion. There is a process by which an artist can be cleansed through messages and coincidences and stars that never lie. There's eclipses and rainbows and aurora borealis daydreams. There's trees to sit beneath and mountains to dream of climbing. There's mimes and jockeys posing for pictures. There's bull whips and cockfights and rhubarb pies. There's details and circumstances with subtle strings attached. There's consequences looming in tiny resurrections. There's a thousand voices calling with a million new solutions to a half a dozen problems that will never disappear because there's poverty everywhere. There's lust and greed. There's corporations and politicians juxtaposing ethics and profits. There's polygraph examinations, DNA and fingerprinting power stations, PCP and revelations of love. There's static on these airwaves and I have not even begun to listen close enough because grandpa didn't have the words to say what I already knew. That there's war out there in the world somewhere. There's fire in the sky. I'm going to try to retire in my prime just in time before the cancer sets in. Mm -hmm. All right. When I was a child, I wanted to play the trumpet. I wanted to hit the high notes and scream it out, make the jazz little jazz, your fingers tapping, flapping out beatnik solos and hepcat, and hepcat melodies like those hepsters in the movies, you know, the old black and whites. I wanted to be cool. I wanted to play the trumpet. So when sixth grade band trials rolled around, I was ready. I wore a tight black turtleneck tucked in with a thick black belt and sunglasses, walked right in, sat down in front, and waited. Quietly. Patiently. 
with all the coolness I could muster. A 10-year-old hepster as calm as a Cadillac with the top down. And when she finally came by and asked me what I wanted to play, I didn't miss a beat. Peered up like a young James Dean from behind my black mini-mart shades and said it. I want to play the trumpet, man. And without a pause, she looked me up and down, raised her hand to her chin, lowered her brow, and said, no. Your lips are too big for the trumpet. Why don't you play the trombone? A backhanded euphemism that really meant, sorry, son, we've got six kids that want to play the trumpet, and the PTA gave us money for three. I was crushed. Not only did she plunge her long, stringy finger straight into the depths of my chest and rip out my childhood dreams of smoky nightclub stardom, but now I had to play the trombone. A clumsy instrument, only square kids played, uncool to the core. With one swipe of her sarcastic sixth grade teacher's tongue, she sentenced me to eight months of schoolboy hell. It was big and bulky, not like the trumpet. It was cumbersome and loud. It lacked all the subtlety and style I desired from music. I was devastated, mortified at the thought of waking up and having to carry that heavy black case to and from school each day. I spent all year scribbling slide positions above the notes in my textbook so I could cheat my way through band practice. I hated everything about that cheap, dented hunk of brass stood for everything the trumpet stood against. It was oompa loompa wrong, and the trumpet was dwee doop dop doop right, and I fought and fought and fought against the trumpet all for the dizzying love of a hepcat. I fought and fought and fought against the trombone all for the dizzying love of a hepcat trumpet daydream, and look at me now, a guitar-playing poet who can't read sheet music. One more, one more. My grandpa, um, my real grandpa, who I didn't know very well, died this summer, and I went down and saw him before he died, and I learned a lot of really, really, really interesting things about him. He was a hell of a soldier and died a very honorable, broken kind of guy. So this, he sort of inspired this. He's hungry for a train wreck. If you listen, you can hear them. Gunshots in the distance. Rapid fire sounds like fury, like angry soldiers hungry for war. I can see them just beyond the tree line, playing their war games, grunting orders at each other like pack dogs getting ready for the hunt, getting ready to kill and die for me and my long hair, me and my right to speak the truth about a long line of soldiers in my family. Generation after generation, war men in my family. Spreading their seed like napalm, murderers begetting murderers. In my family, there's a long-standing tradition of waiting for a train wreck. Twisted metal sounds like fury, like a million timeless warriors standing there honorably, stripped of everything honorably, and dying honorably. They were bold-faced aberrations of an age-old disposition. They were hard-nosed military fathers that were there and angry or never there at all. And they broke us like they were broken. First in boot camp, children forced into manhood, then again for real this time on the battlefield where they kept pictures of our mothers to remind them what they were fighting for. They held our mothers close, like we do. And they gave us life. And one by one, each to each, and son by son, they gave us a heritage of service to our country, but never our family. And one by one, each to each, and son by son, they went off to war and came back different men, not ready for anything but a train wreck. Have you people have ever like broken up with someone before? Never happened to me, ever, ever. 
<laughs> okay, so I'm lying. <laughs> anyway, this is a this is a poem about the m the time after I finally got over some guy that I dated for two and a half years or something. I know, man. It's called uh, Dead Pen Heaven. It was the point after amazing, before the first drag, and suspended sentences lingered like smoke rings intertwined with a breathless, oh my god. In brilliant disarray, we wandered timelessly, creating images of the shadows where there was only darkness. Contemplative, we sat silent, basked in honesty, laid back exhausted but floating. The tiny moments of the day shared like the last cigarette treasured. But it really wasn't like that, was it? It was after mediocre, after too many cigarettes, a long sweaty night at the bar, the bass still throbbing, my brain dulled numb by crystal reflections, my concentration shattered like my fantasy of romantic bliss. I was looking for angels and found a dim reminder, a scrapbook of wishes held sacred. It was a question asked in one naked moment that never crossed searching lips. It was the tip of the corkscrew in a dusty bottle of wine when we toasted to nothing and drank our fill of cheap Merlot. It was another night and another show, and in the twist of a dancing girl, the quietness of introspection fell on shoulders of misunderstanding. Your voice echoed louder in my ears than the mamba of the music. It ended with a circle of strangers staring at the falling apart, a little piece of imagination stolen by angry pretenses. So... It was after disillusionment dissolved and I was left with only cigarettes. In the sanctity of a home surrounded by a chorus of downtown, a sigh escaped, engulfed by the weight of my obligation to holding it together, finally released. The solitary comfort of a midnight breath dissipating the fears of a potential cat lady. When I know tomorrow that my kitty Elvis will be upside down in the sunshine, I can wait for simple passion knowing that it will finally feel like home. For this poem. Yeah! It's weeks like these that keep me smoking. When she tells me Mercury is in retrograde, making communication impossible. And, and that, that explains, explains everything. everything. When my roommate smokes my lucky cigarette. When we just need to go disco dancing. When I'm talking to him, but my tongue is tripping over the double knot I tied in my shoes. When there was a freak quantum flux in the space-time continuum and a wormhole opened up in the middle of my living room and Pat, Pat Robertson wants, wants to save my soul. When the only thing keeping me going is cigarettes, cigarettes and, and coffee, coffee get me up in the morning. Brew fresh pie. Disguised as asleep, take a sip and a puff. Hides me from the world till caffeine is my motivation and nicotine steadies my hands. And I'm ready. I get in my truck and head out into the chaos. Become part of a society trapped in a series of shiny metal boxes, chugging along with travel mugs and nicotine patches. Each to their own private hell. Some capitalist lackey tries to squeeze his SUV in front of me. It's time for a smoke. I can't ram my toy truck up its tailpipe because I only have three payments to go until I get my soul back. When the bills just keep on coming. And ramen doodles the staple of my diet and, and I'd, I'd be, be able, able to, to afford, afford real food, food if, if I didn't, didn't smoke. smoke so I vow to quit and then I go to Myers to buy something with an ounce of nutritional value and there's five billion people with seven kids each and all I hear is mommy I want lucky charm child whining I want cocoa pebbles sending me spiraling crunch berry 
please, mama, One please. step I closer wanna, to insanity. I want, I want a cigarette, cigarette and a cup of coffee, coffee damn, it. damn it. I'm shoving over soccer moms. Banana cards. Wine racks. Macaroni displays. I, I run, run screaming, screaming to the, the cigarette, cigarette counter. counter. Fuck the food. I'm, I'm smoking, smoking again. again. And I quit for exactly 42 minutes and 23 seconds. But, but it's, it's more than, than that. that. It's the morning coffee cigarette. The frustrated poem cigarette. The lunch break cigarette. The 15 minutes to kill cigarette. You'd rather suck tar than deal with you cigarette. The smoke-filled nightclub cigarette. The mom loved you best cigarette. The it's 3 a.m. and I just can't sleep the cigarette. The got too drunk and lit the filter cigarette. Oh my god, it's him cigarette. The, the how many goddamn times do we have, have to have, have this conversation, conversation cigarette? cigarette? The god, that was a great meal cigarette. Damn, that was a great fuck cigarette. The did you really do that to my toes last night, cigarette? Yeah, I've already smoked a pack and a half today, so what does it really matter, cigarette? Another sitcom. Cigarette. Another telemarketer. Cigarette. Another nightly news. Cigarette. Another gas hike. Cigarette. Another wildfire. Cigarette. Another, another gunshot, gunshot right, right outside, outside my bedroom, bedroom window, window, sending me screaming back through 10,000 empty packs. Back to when I was 15 and started the lucky cigarette ritual. And now, at 25, I finally learned the story behind the tradition. Soldiers at war would turn over the last cigarette they'd smoke because they'd be lucky to make it to the end of another pack and, and even, even though, though it'll probably, probably kill me in the end, end at least i know i've lived another day all right and that man is here for us today and we are so fucking lucky for this man all right, everybody, come on, let's give him a real Kalamazoo welcome, Mr. Scott Klein. There's these two old boys standing on a porch, one looking off over this way, the other one looking over off this way. They stood there all day. Every once, in a while, every once in a while, one of them would say, yep, and the other one would say, uh-huh. About mid-afternoon, one looking this way says, you know what I see? The other one says, uh-uh. He says, I see a beautiful woman standing about 50 feet from me, bare-ass naked. There's long silence. The other one says, damn. I wish I was looking that way. <laughs> I love Arkansas jokes. That's an Arkansas joke. <laughs> I have good news for the bar owners of America. I have decided to drink myself into a stupid state of heterosexual bliss. Some would say I'm a product of a gene, an odd gene, a queer little gene. Others say I'm a social construction. The only thing I know that is that whatever I am can be affected by a continual state of drunkenness by submerging myself in a never-ending river of Johnny Walker Red until my personality is perfectly conjoined with the alcohol. I am well aware that the brew that is said to make women look better can turn against me. The same liquor that will leave me hugging yon fair maiden's toilet bowl and blaming the lack of an erection on one too many rum and cokes could turn around and bite me in the ass and send me after every 
blind-eyed, buffed-out, blue-eyed boy walking through the door like some sort of supercharged faggot. The only upside to this is that my friends and associates will assume that I am drunk and nothing more. They will say that I am one of those friendly drunks and completely ignore my gropings at thighs and crotches and they will say it's innocent and that I am a happy drunk. And I know, I know my feelings may change when the hangover hits, the nagging headache, the aversion to bright lights and the dull metallic taste in my mouth could lead me to question my actions, but at least then my lack of a date will be blamed on laziness, no personality, or poor personal hygiene. And who knows? There may be a woman there for me, one who will not see me as a mere sex object, who will be taught just to wait until the man loses interest, who will require her own bedroom and boyfriend. We will be the happy sort, barren as our summer brown lawn, sterile as the suburbs where we live. And once any chance for happiness is completely wrung from us, we will gladly divorce. And the end will find me a fat, pasty-skinned white guy dabbing the grease from baked chicken. Oh, yes, bartender, there is reason to celebrate. Pour me a scotch of water and don't let them stop. Because tonight, I drink myself completely and utterly straight. All right. Since this is a cover slam tonight, I heard this poem when I was in Arkansas a couple of weeks ago. And uh, though I only heard it once, I think I can do it. My apologies to the author, who I don't remember his name. But it goes like this. I have seen you walking quickly down the street, pushing yourself quickly along on the ball of your feet because your toes have been frozen. If only I could speak as eloquently as the voices in your head, I would take you to the hospital. I'm a man adrift in the sea. I hear voices of those drowning, those drowned. They reach up, breaking the stilled surface, shattering a sea becalmed with the words which float like pieces of splintered wood in the water of my imagination. I know you would say your toes are black and, the, and your skin to your shin is warm to the touch. You can feel the blood and pain surge when you balance your weight on the soul. I am a man lost in the woods. The glade and the brown meadow speak to me. The field stone speaks to me. The tree spirits are as clear in my ear as the voice of anyone I know. The shadows surround me. Their words form the boughs of my prison. It is gangrene and you will die. You will wake up and your legs will be gone. Wheels will replace the soles of your feet, translating your passage across the concrete. I have become the night and you are just the dawn. I hold in my arms all things, seen and unseen, heard and unheard, felt and unfelt, spoken and unspoke, thought and unthought, moved and unmoved, permanent and temporary. I am the night. You are just the dawn. You will say, I have always been the, the toes. I have been a long time blackened, and the body now 
rots, if I am not removed, the rest will die. Immortality is invisible. Its body lacks a substance to cast even a faint shadow. It waits for you at the end of sentences. It lives in abandoned metaphors. It looks out from a sentence's backside. Every man knows. Every woman knows. Man knowing woman knowing man knowing your name and little else never knowing that you confused meaning with validity now that the rivers come to a wider poem and you are drowning in an ocean of words you know what you're right john says what's subversive isn't always obvious Protester, protested, do a little Irish jig in a backwater bar. Signifier, signified, do a little dance in dimly lit coffee houses. The whole thing's a ballet or at least a Broadway musical with good production values. As they turn off each other for momentum as they circle the center until black requires white, requires right, requires wrong, requires good, requires bad, requires city, requires suburb, requires our participation. And are you a real poet or do you just slam a lot? He wants to know. And I must admit, I haven't been much of an arsonist myself. I dumped a lot of gas on a lot of stuff, but I never lit the fire. I don't know what I was thinking would happen. Uh, yet another act of God, yet another poem about social injustice isn't going to cut it. Listen. They knew how to start fires in Detroit, but now they pile on the similes and metaphors like firewood. And just in case something does catch on fire, they throw on a couple tires to keep up, kick up a lot of smoke. Just in case something does burn, no one will ever see nothing important is really burning. Listen, I have heard poets with something to say, and they don't sound anything like you. They are invisible. Their bodies like the substance to cast even a faint shadow. They wait for you at the end of lines. They'll drag you back to an abandoned metaphor and chain you to a set sentence's built backside, built in the imagination out of theirs. Poets always perish. Only words are immortal. She says, to me she says, maybe he'll bring his own blankets. We're cleaning the room where he'll stay. I think to myself, poor girlfriend, still hasn't learned no man ever comes with his own blankets. <laughs> Do you come with your own blankets? Uh-huh. And I don't come with blankets. I'd like to dedicate this, this poem to a man who's going to keep me working a lot for the next four years, Mr. George Bush. And we're taking off the gloves right away. I waited till 1992 to swing in his dad, but this one's going to start now. When the dam finally breaks and there is no high ground left, there will be nothing left to do but drown, friend. There is yet to be a day I don't think about rolling bud and drinking beer, dealing cards to Catholic boys, fresh from the fall, unable to recall what turned the B 
beat to the beatitude and left us sanctified at the slam. I am a different sort, wrapped up tight in the winds of God's wrath. There is not an ounce of guilt in me. Just plain old-fashioned, born-again, Pentecostal fear. If the serpent don't bite you, if your parents or the police don't catch you, who's to say it's not God's will? There's no cost without conviction, no confession or contrition, just plain old-fashioned fire and brimstone will do me just fine. My friends say it's all good, that it'll all work out in the end, that when the dam finally breaks and there is no high ground left, there'll be nothing left to do but drown. And drowned I did, and beer and bud and Catholic boys, unable to suppress the nagging suspicion that we're all going to have to answer a lot of questions just for being an American. I can hear old St. Peter now, yo, how many times I got to say it? Use Americans, get out the light. No, that's not fear, that's guilt. None like Amadou Diallo, less than 41 shots stilled my soul. When the dam finally breaks, there will be nothing left to do but drown. And drown we did in bright lights, black microphones, hip-hop, bebop, and assorted consumer goods, neon, digital, and the real life repackaged and resold as the real experience until the dam breaks until the vanquished turn to locusts and the executed right out of Texas behind the four horsemen of the apocalypse swinging around starved children like whips striking out the eyes of the righteous kicking ass up one side of the street and down the other. Now, that's not guilt. That's fear. And we're all drowned. For Jody, this is how innocence is lost. This is how Hurt turns to graffiti in dim-lit rooms. This is how innocence is lost in thin slices peeling away to the center of it. I myself am no longer an innocent. I no longer believe the force of personality can wipe our thoughts clear as sure as hate burns its impression that right trumps wrong, that the ballot trumps the bullet when the gun is in the hand of a child and the shot reported sounds eloquent as it asks, what of our innocence? Jody, a seven-year-old, comes in, stands next to me. Did I tell you that Jody was black? Jody comes in, stands next to me, looks up at me and says, is it true, Uncle Scott, that white people don't steal. She'd been accused, stood and blamed in the space where race equals guilt. Her sister says, for this reason, she will never have white friends. She does not look into the glass she is filling with water with some unsaid thought just sitting there. To her sister, I say, I hope we're always friends. To Jody, I say, I've always been a thief. It's my cultural heritage. <laughs> Couple more for you. You know, people ask me from time to time what it is that I do do. <laughs> I don't tell them that 
I am in the afterbelly, the colon, if you will, of show business. Uh, one of the highlights of my career thus far was a show we did in Hot Springs, Arkansas, in the old high school auditorium where it is said, Bill Clinton, then a mere saxophone player, solicited his first blowjob. Come on now, baby. You play the flute. This ain't no different. And for this reason, the building is perfectly preserved for its historic value. It was during the intermission of the show I was standing in the men's room peeing into an ancient porcelain trough, perhaps the same trough that once caught Bill Clinton's pee when who should saddle up next to me but Lawrence Ferlinghetti. Suddenly, these thoughts race through my head. Do I look ahead at the cinder block? Do I say nothing? Do I turn to him after shaking my pecker dry and say, Mr. Ferlinghetti, it's been a real pleasure to pee with you. Was I worthy? Do I dare? Do I offer to shake his hand? Shake that hand. Shake the hand that once held the gaze of Allen Ginsberg. All right. I know my hand would get really dirty. Despite what my mother said about good hygiene, would I be able to wash it for days, for weeks, for months, for years? My friends would all say to me, say, Scott, is that the hand that once shook the cold and sweaty hand of Lawrence Ferlinghetti? They'd nod knowingly, move slightly away from me because most of the people I know don't even know who Lawrence Ferlinghetti is. Imagine that. Hmm. So, what do I do? Mr. Ferlinghetti, let the world be damned. I decide to talk to him, but he's gone. My opportunity, gone. Pissed away in a moment of indecision, which pretty well sums up my whole career to date. <sighs> so when people ask me, what is it that I do do? I tell them I'm a garbage collector or a dishwasher, something they can relate to, not poet. What the hell is a poet? He tells me, that 30 people he knew in Bosnia are dead. She tells me that 30 people she knew in Uganda are dead. He tells me that 30 people he knew in Bangladesh are dead. She tells me 30 people she knew in Kosovo are dead. He tells me that 30 people he knew in New York are dead. She tells me that 30 people she knew in San Francisco are dead. He tells me 30 people he knew in San Francisco are dead. He tells me that 30 people he knew in Dallas are dead. She tells me 30 people she knew in Detroit are dead. He tells me 30 people he knew in Kalamazoo are dead. I'm still counting the dead as they move down emptied streets to lie with me thick as sheets, wet with night sweat. I put my question to the wind. Who among the dead might have loved me? At the one o'clock movie, there is no one there but me. As the reels of film are fed to the machine, 
I sit alone, comforted only by handfuls of buttered popcorn. By late afternoon, I am sitting on a park bench, asking the people passing by to stand with me in the rows of gravestones. I ask them, where's the grave I can lay the flowers I've grown on? I'm an old woman sitting on the porch remembering a young man she once loved, now killed in war. She long ago crafted responses to his last letter, and from time to time she recites the words, never remembering that she never wrote them down. I'm a young man. She the old woman and the photograph on the mantle, the only man who ever loved her. She bakes me cookies, gives me milk after I cut the lawn. She hopes that I will never learn that despair is hope's bitter cousin, that a early death to plague or war leaves odd parts of the world unpainted. Her question is different than mine. She knew the man who loved her. I can only sense the silence and ask who among the dead might have loved me, who died alone in the bedroom on the kitchen floor, surrounded by friends and family in the hospital, whose blood was sprayed from the sidewalk with a garden hose, who sat on a park bench spent from summer heat and thick who wanted only to be held, who was afraid to say who they were, who with their last breath wondered who I was and why I wasn't there. I didn't know who you were or what was happening. I still don't have a name for the letters I write or a face for the photograph that I don't have. I can only ask people who can never tell me who among the dead might have loved me. This is my brother, come back home. This is my brother, come back home. This is my brother, come back home. Gray, bloated. Old men with long sticks poke the body. Women hold their dress seams, rolling them like dough. Children run down the bank singing, this is my brother, come back There's death in your spiked arm, plaid as euphoria, warm, thick as semen. Freddie Gomez. Freddie's name turns the room silent. His is a curtain drawn around the dying. Freddie Gomez. Freddie. There was weed, there was lots of weed, there were girls, lots of girls. That's what I remember about Freddie in high school. So I was surprised six years later when Freddie picked me up cruising for boys. Later at his sister's apartment, I asked about the girls. He said he was turned by this coke dealer in Florida who wanted to suck his dick. Well, everybody wanted to suck Freddie's dick. And Freddie liked coke. He dissolved it in a spoon and said it made him feel alive. He wants some too. I know you like coke too. And make your dick stay hard all night. Make you blow a nut against the back wall. Make you see the Jesus, Madre, Blessed Virgin. All the fag boys say Freddy's a fucking machine. All lined up one after another. They say, come on, Freddy, come on. Come on, Freddy. Yeah, Freddy. You like that? Ooh, yeah. Freddy. Freddy. Freddy Gomez is dead. I say his name. Old friends change the subject. I say, Freddy Gomez, the door slams shut, the light goes off, the key turns. People forget 
This is my brother. Come back home. I got one more for you. I wrote this for my friends in Detroit <laughs> at the yeah at the wonderful raft where they do slams. You say no one likes me. I do not trust your intention in a country where it is legal to kill me. This queer body was criminalized long ago. I know. Desire dismissed. Passions unnatural. I suffer. I have learned by the slow study the fixed gaze of others' horror, discovered my offense in a crowded room where in innuendo shadow I am bashed. I have heard practiced angst can pass for intelligence and cynicism equals a quick wit. None of that is true where I live in a place where no one likes me. I chant mystic praises, sing rhythmic phrases, run through ancient mazes, walk for days through the haze to say this. This is not a phase. I turn stone to flesh. Once removed and washed, I turn flesh back to stone and kneel at the altar. I have been haunted by a queer-baiting Jesus, hunted by my own image in the mirror, kept to myself because I was sure no one liked me. I've been set on fire, burned in person by the faggots in my feet, lit cigarettes on the embers in my arm, whitened my face with the ash of identity. I have been a white man while every pore in my body screamed like the voice of all white men for hard dick up the ass. I turned around to see death all around me and chose instead my own life.
If you ask me, makes too much out of sex. He makes a damn gospel out of it. Not in my way of thinking. Sex is natural, don't you know? Like birth or death. Besides, I'm not interested in literature as we know it, or poetry as we know it. What are you interested in? Henry writes about fucking. Fucking? No, I'm writing about self-liberation. No, it's definitely about fucking. 